there actually was some wisdom in that saying. Maybe, and then, so you gotta bear with me, I'm not that bright. So maybe I'm just trying to figure this out. Uh, but maybe we were never supposed to have been taking it that literally. Now, now of course, I, I know you don't really turn into a chocolate bunny. But what I mean is, maybe that saying, and I never thought about this before, but maybe that saying wasn't about food at all. Maybe it wasn't about what we consume with our mouths, but what we consume with our minds. Maybe it wasn't about food at all. Maybe it was about our thoughts. And if that's true, then actually I think that saying has a bit more staying power. Because there's a bit more truth to it. If it's not, if it's not about our mouths, but about our minds, then yeah, that, that makes sense. You are what you eat. You are what you think about. You are what you let into your thoughts. You are the media and the philosophies you consume. And, and this seems a little bit to be Paul's concern here in this verse that I've chosen to kind of to, to frame our Easter reflection around. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, he says, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything excellence or anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Last week, uh, we finished uh, a series uh, from the book of Ecclesiastes. And one of the things uh, that we saw at the end of that book, we saw a description of Solomon, the writer of Ecclesiastes. We saw a description of his communication where it says he in his communication to us through the writing of scriptures that he was thoughtful, careful delightful and true that's a great framework for all communication even as you're tweeting or posting on social media is it thoughtful, careful, delightful and true and it's my prayer this morning that as we reflect on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that our reflection this morning would be thoughtful, careful, delightful, and true. For there's nothing more excellent or worthy of praise than the simple fact that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. There is no higher or more exalted fact of human history than that Jesus Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. And so my prayer this morning is not only to communicate information, but that the Holy Spirit may grant us illumination and that will lead us into celebration. And so that's what we're going to do. We're just going to do this. It's going to be more like our reflection this morning. Just taking on the resurrection, the risen Christ. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is pure, whatever is just, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, think on these things. Holy Spirit, we pray as we consider your resurrection this morning. Open up our eyes, open up our hearts, open up our souls to receive you. This morning, in your name, Amen. It's going to be a simple reflection this morning on the resurrection. First, the resurrection is true. 
Think on the resurrection. Think on these things. Think on the truth of the resurrection. We're not interested in Easter in filling our minds with fables and fairy tales. Magical bunnies who hide eggs are fun for the children, but beware lest we come to categorize the victory of Christ along with the fiction of myth. The declaration is not once upon a time, but that Jesus really walked on this earth. Peter, who is one of Jesus' friends and followers, insists upon this as he testifies that we did not follow cleverly divided myths when we made known to you of the power of his coming. The apostle said, no, 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 no. We were not fiction tellers or myth makers. Jesus truly walked among us. He truly was sentenced to an excruciating death upon the cross. Jesus really was placed into a newly hewn grave outside of Jerusalem. And that stone that was placed over the tomb is still sitting somewhere in outside of Jerusalem where it rolled away this morning. And yes, we believe the unbelievable that Jesus Christ truly rose from the grave. That he physically walked out of the tomb, not as some ghost, or as some sort of spiritual hope inspiring the hearts of his believers, but physically, bodily, give me a bite of that fish, walked out of the grave. The message of the early church wasn't primarily with making an inspirational argument. It wasn't that if you hope well enough that Jesus will rise in your hearts. The message of the early church was not even primarily a scriptural argument, although they made the scriptural argument. They, they, they claimed that the scriptures taught that the Christ might, must suffer, die, and rise again. But it wasn't even primarily that. It wasn't even primarily a logical argument, speaking of our need for our Savior. The message of the early church was primarily based on making a direct proclamation. He said he was the way to God. He said if we killed him, he would rise from the dead. They killed him, and he rose. And we saw him. This was Peter. Peter in front of the, in front of the Jewish leaders when they told them, stop proclaiming this. Stop teaching these things. And what Peter responded and John responded, they said, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot stop speaking about, and here's what they said, we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. He's risen. He's risen. The apostles were not some sort of pre-scientific dupes. They knew, just as we do, that people don't just walk out of tombs. Here's what John, one of the eyewitnesses, wrote about a response to the resurrection. And maybe you would identify this. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So, so, so ten of them were there, and, and, and Thomas wasn't. They said, we saw him, and he, he said, yeah, right. 
He wasn't with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his, in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hands into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me, yet still believe. This could be my whole message to you this morning unpacking the truth of the resurrection. If you want that message, you can actually go to our website. I did that last year. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? But today I'm just simply going to proclaim the truth of the resurrection, and I want you to reflect on the truth of the resurrection. But I'm not going to defend the truth of the resurrection. Because I understand if you do not want to believe, you will not believe. But we want to move on in our reflection. Whatever is true, yes. But there's more to the resurrection than just our intellect and these propositional truths. My prayer, as I said, is that not only that you would see the truth of Christ, but you would see the beauty and the goodness of the Lord in his resurrection. So let's move on. The resurrection is true, yes. The resurrection is honorable. Think about what is honorable. The resurrection is honorable. The word honorable in the Greek suggests that which is serious, sublime, and here it is, dignified and majestic. The lofty and majestic things. The honor of the resurrection The resurrection is glorious, yes, but the honor of the resurrection is set in the framework. It's just opposed or contrasted with the dishonor and the indignity of the cross. The cross was in an especially undignified manner of execution. Reserved for the worst of criminals, the body of the criminal exposed naked to the elements and to the onlookers as every bit of strength drained. People on the cross would often die simply because their strength would fail. Exposed, vulnerable, Naked, trembling, weak. That's the cross. Onlookers mocked and scorned Jesus. His friends disowned him and disappeared. Among the Jews, crucifixion was regarded with special indignity because they held a saying, Cursed be anyone who hangs upon a tree. Yet I 
commend to you this morning that it's precisely the dishonor of the cross that makes the resurrection so glorious. Earlier in the book of Philippians, Paul writes, the, the, the cross is held up, the indignity of the cross is held up as the supreme example of Jesus' glorious, self-emptying love. And it's the reason why his resurrection is accorded such honor. Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death and gasp. Even death on a cross. Therefore, you see that therefore? The indignity of the death on the cross, the glory of the resurrection, because he humbled himself and took the form of a servant, humbled himself obedient unto death, even gasp death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. You see that therefore? He humbled himself to the humility of cross, therefore God has highly exalted him. Now you might stop me and say, hold on. Say, hold on, hold on. Plenty of people died on the cross. Multitudes of criminals suffered that indignity. Does God honor and exalt all of those who suffered in that shameful way? No. Jesus is special. It's a good point, but the dishonor of Jesus' death on the cross is not merely a function of how he died, but of who died. Jesus Christ, as this passage said, though he was existed in the form of God, it was he, the divine Son of God, who determined to empty himself of his divine position to walk among us as a servant. The indignity of a cross is magnified by the infinite dignity of its divine victim. And in subjecting himself, the divine one, the all-glorious one, the almighty one, the maker of the stars and subjecting himself to that indignity. For our sake is what grants the resurrection such glory and honor and praise. What love. See, if I came over to your house today for dinner, I don't know. You might think it's a fun time. You might be happy that I came. I don't know if you would be or not. If the mayor came over to your house, we might clean up a little bit more. He might put on some of the better silverware. If the premier came over to your house to dine and to sup with you, and I'm not talking, I don't know what your political bents are, but he might even get out the better dishes. And if the prime minister came, he might call your friends. 
come help me clean the house and get it ready. The God of the universe came and supped with us. He came and walked with us. He subjected himself to the indignity of death, even to death on the cross. And therefore, because such a man, such a God, such a Savior has done it, has made the ultimate sacrifice, has taken on himself the ultimate indignity, and that is why he is ultimately honored. Whatever is honorable, think of these things. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, what's sown in dishonor is raised in glory. Man, fill your hearts and your thoughts with Christ. Have this mindset in you that was also in Christ Jesus. But we move on. The resurrection is not only true, it's not only honorable, but the resurrection of Christ is just. The resurrection is just. The word speaks of justice in the broadest possible sense. Not simply in relation of humans, but in accordance with the divine standard, having fulfilled all relations to God and to man. The resurrection is just because after Jesus had fulfilled all obligations to God regarding sin, death no longer held sway over him. Paul writes in Romans 6-9, We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. To speak very clearly to you. And if you're here today and you do not know Christ, I want you right now, listen please. The greatest tension in the Bible is this. How can a holy, perfect, pure, righteous, and just God dwell among sinners like us? How can we as human beings stand in the presence of such a God? We, we all recognize, every single religion, even every single worldview, recognizes that human beings are flawed, selfish, imperfect creatures. Take a moment right now. Search the depths of your own heart. With a moment's reflection, we can understand that we daily violate the standards and the image that we set for ourselves much less comparing ourselves to the standards of Scripture. Like, this was the thing that spoke to me when I was 16 years old, and my friend first took a Bible and said, has, God, has anyone ever showed you what the Bible says about who God is and about who you are? And he showed me that verse, Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And what I recognized, even as a 16-year-old high school student, was not only did I sin and fall short of the glory of God, I did not even meet or match my own standard. I fell short of my own standard, and if there was a God, how much more would I fall short of His glorious standard? I didn't need to be convinced of the selfishness of my heart. A moment's reflection revealed it. Now, there's many of us that would deal with that problem by remaking God in our image. Right? We deal with the problem of our human sin, and if we believe in God, or want to believe in God, what we do is we, we remake this God in our image, and so we understand that God is maybe 
okay, kind of, with our sin. That, that, that God, you know, we make him off kind of like he's a far-off pen pal that sends us encouraging notes from time to time and doesn't really make that big deal of sin. I mean, we all make mistakes. No one's perfect, and God knows that. And after all, it's, it's kind of his fault because he made us this way. So as long as we try to love and be nice to people, we don't need to worry about all that sin and all that hell talk. Listen, please. That is a God of your imagination. It is a God of our imagination. It is not God as he's revealed himself in Scripture. He has revealed himself in Scripture as being perfectly pure, perfectly holy, perfectly just. He cannot stand the slightest sin in his presence. And so if we were to come face to face and encounter with this God, we would be destroyed. On account of his perfect holiness, he cannot be in the presence of sin. On account of his perfect justice, he must condemn evil. And that is bad news for us. The eye of God's holiness sees our sin and the arrow of God's justice is drawn toward our sin. The judicial wrath of God is fully and fixedly set upon sinners and each one of us stands condemned to die for our sin. And the eternal sentence of hell awaits each of us. The Bible is clear in declaring our condemnation. The wages of sin is death. Have you thought about your death? Have you thought about what awaits you? Death is a fearful fate to the condemned. For if there not be a means of reconciliation to God we will be cast away from his presence eternally in hell. It is a fearful, terrible thing to have the arrow of God's justice pointed at you. Enter Jesus. Jesus said, I didn't come into this world to condemn the world. The world was already condemned. But enter Jesus driven by love. Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, the Son of Man, takes his stand with us. Jesus identifies with us. Jesus identifying, taking on the nature and the form of sinners like us. Jesus sets the target of the arrow of God's justice that was set upon us. He sets the target upon himself. Jesus, on Good Friday, as we reflected on Friday, Jesus dies for our sins, for the sins of the world. Jesus dies for our sins in our place. Jesus 
drinks the cup of the wrath of God, Jesus perfectly satisfies the justice of God that all who stand by him are accepted into God's presence, forgiven and reconciled. Their sins are dealt with. Our sins can be forgiven. God did not send Jesus into this world to destroy. He sent Jesus in this world to save and to seek and to save the lost. And having died to sin, once for all, death no longer had any dominion over Jesus and therefore death could not hold him down and defeating death, he raised to life. He ascended into heaven and he now sits at God's right hand testifying before the heavenly court that all who find life in him are justly declared righteous. I gave this illustration a few weeks ago. I'll give it again. 1 John chapter 1 and into chapter 2 declares that Jesus is our advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's our advocate because he has made propitiation. What that means is, the word advocate means that he stands in our defense, making a defense for us. The word propitiation means he has paid it and provided all the means by which God's justice would be satisfied. And so Jesus can stand at the right hand of God making a defense. And you ask me, what is our defense? The answer that Jesus gives making our defense is, I have paid it. It is finished. Justice is satisfied. Father, forgive them. The resurrection is just because justice is served and satisfied in the cross. The resurrection is pure. The apostles declared that Jesus had risen from the dead. The self-same body of Jesus that was placed in the tomb that had already begun to decay was the self-same body that was raised to life, however now in a form immortal, imperishable and indestructible. And I don't understand that at all. To be honest, I don't. But there's one other quality of this glorified body, however, and it's a quality that speaks to us now. It's purity. John, first, John writes in 1 John chapter 3, he says, Behold or see what kind of love the Father's given to us. Man, that's a great thing to think about on this resurrection day. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know Him. Beloved, we're God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we'll see Him as He is. And everyone who has thus hope, everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself, and here's the word, as he is pure. The resurrection body, the glorified body of Jesus is pure. Think about 
what is pure. To all who have received the new life of Christ, to whom Jesus' death has been imputed, we receive a new identity. You're a child of God. If you have come, turn from your sins and turn to Jesus Christ in faith and repentance. God actually literally adopts you as his son or daughter into his family. He gives you a new identity and he gives you a new inclination. By the power of the Holy Spirit that he gives to his children, we now have a new inclination that we seek to purify ourselves even as he is pure. Whereas we once walked in the ways of the world, inclined toward the sins that would defile us, we who possess this hope of the resurrection purify ourselves in that hope as he is impure. Do we fully experience this purity now? No. Of course not. We continue to walk in the flesh of this perishable body. We continue to walk in this world that soils. But we look to him, the pure one, the risen one, the glorious one. We see his glory, we see his purity, and the Holy Spirit inside us begins to give us this new inclination so that we, we learn to live in his ways and walk after him. Seeking after him. I, I so much want to be done with this body of sin. Are you tired of it? I can see as, as, as a Christian, you know what I'm talking about. If you're here and you're a Christian, you know how frustrating sin is. The great news of the gospel is that Jesus in salvation has rescued us from the condemnation of sin, but we still live in the struggle against the power of sin. And day by day we walk with Christ. The Spirit gives us victory by victory. We begin to grow in that purification. But praise be to God, someday, ultimately, I cannot wait until we are freed from the presence of sin itself. We see Him. We'll be like Him. And everyone who has this hope purifies themselves as He is pure. Whatever is lovely, Think on these things. Whatever is lovely, the resurrection of Christ is lovely. The word lovely here suggests that which calls forth love. Love inspiring, giving pleasure to all. Like a welcome fragrance. There's a detail about this glorified body of Christ that maybe you caught earlier when we were doing that one about Thomas. That passage about Thomas. That when Jesus, remember what Thomas said, unless I can touch his hands and see his side, I will not believe. And Jesus shows up and says, here, look, touch, see, feel, here I am. That when Jesus confronted Thomas the doubter, he demonstrated he was indeed the selfsame Jesus who was crucified by showing him his hands and his sides. In other words, the scars of the crucifixion remained on the perfected body of Christ. The scars remained. And this is strange. The scars of Jesus' dishonorable death would remain in his glorified personal presentation. And there's been a little bit of a debate in church history because, to be honest, this is strange. Jesus' glorified body still bearing the scars. But it does seem as though the scars remained after he ascended into heaven because when John describes a vision of Jesus in the book of Revelation, he describes seeing Jesus as a lamb standing as though slain, suggesting that the scars remain in heaven. 
The early church father, Gregory of Nazianzus, in his second oration at Easter, remarks that the angels had to be convinced that this one who bore the scars was the same one who descended from heaven to the earth. <laughs> Can you imagine the angels are witnessing the Son of God descending to the earth in the incarnation? He was, they only saw him, they only knew him as the glorious word, the glorious second person of the Trinity. And he goes to, to incarnate and to dwell among us and he returns to heaven Bearing the marks of these scars. And the angels say, wait, how do we know you're the same one? Who is this king of glory? He asks. Yet the answer given to the angels is not that the scars of the passion should discredit the Savior, but that they speak of his love. They speak of his glory and they speak of his beauty. Gregory writes, set forth the beauty Set forth the beauty of the array of that body that suffered. Adorned by the passion. Made splendid by the Godhead. Of which nothing can be more lovely or more beautiful. We sing of the beauty of the scars. Can you sing this with me? Two verses of this song. Crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Awake my soul and sing. Of him who died for thee, and hail him as thy matchless king through all eternity. Crown him the Lord of love. Crown him the Lord of love. Behold his hands and side. Rich wounds yet visible above in beauty glorified. No angel in the sky can fully bear that sight, but downward bends his burning eye at mystery so Right. Amen. The beautiful scars of Jesus testifying through eternity of the work of salvation that he was sent to accomplish and has accomplished. And finally, Tuan, can you uh, click back on there? Just on the, yeah, thanks. There you go. Finally, this morning, whatever is commendable. The word speaks to that which is likely to win people. The resurrection is commendable. And here's my appeal to you this Easter morning. I commend the resurrection of Christ to you. 
Open your hearts. Open your minds. Open your souls. Open your eyes to see his beauty. Open your minds to contemplate his truth. Open your souls to receive his work of propitiation and the forgiveness of sins. Turn to Christ. Flee from hell and find salvation at his side. As Paul testified of the resurrection of Christ before the great King Agrippa, King Agrippa cried out, In a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? And what was Paul's response? Paul said, Whether short time or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am. And though we're here this morning together only for a moment, this could be a monumental moment indeed. In fact, this could be the moment separating in your life heaven and hell, life and death. Brothers and sisters, Jesus raised to life declaring that God is for us, declaring that the justice of God has been satisfied and with a proclamation that forgiveness and salvation are now available to all who call on the name of the Lord and set their hope upon him. As I said, I commend the truth of the resurrection to you. It's not a fairy tale. It's not a myth. It was an event witnessed in history and proclaimed among the nations. I commend the honor of the resurrection to you, that the glorious one has subjected himself to the most indignified of deaths, and therefore God has raised him up, giving him a name that's above every name, that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I commend the justice of the resurrection to you, that having died once for sin, death no longer has any dominion on him, nor on any who are found in him by faith. I commend the purity of the resurrection to you, that he stands gloriously in heaven, and everyone who sees him as gloriously pure purifies themselves as he is pure. I commend the loveliness of the resurrection to you. If you're here today in the sound of my voice, I pray today that today would be your day of salvation. That maybe you've never seen Christ in his glory, in his purity, in his love, in his truth, in his beauty. And maybe there's someone today you want to believe. You desperately want to believe. You've seen Christ and the Spirit is calling right now to your heart and you say, I want Christ. I need life. And would you pray with me even right now? Pray with me. Father in heaven, I'm sorry. I have sinned against you. I now see the glory, the beauty, and the truth of Jesus. Forgive me of my sins. Come into my life, Holy Spirit. 
Save me. Teach me. Lead me. Guide me. Love me. Holy Spirit, right now I pray you are ministering to the hearts of people this morning that need you. Holy Spirit, I pray you will not let them leave this place without coming forward speaking to me that we might mark this day as a day of salvation. Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, you'd be searching their hearts, show them their sin, and show them the beauty of their Savior. They came to church on Easter morning expecting a holiday. God, I pray that they would leave here experiencing life, salvation, forgiveness of sin. In your name we pray. Amen. This I'm not going to preach anymore. I hope this is the message you got from this whole message. The resurrection is excellent and worthy of praise. Can I get the worship team to come on up? We're going to sing because that's the only response. The response is to receive. If the Holy Spirit has illuminated your heart, that is, He has shown you Christ today, I pray that now we would celebrate together. Crown him with many crowns. Crown him the Lord of life. So we're going to worship um, a little bit more, and I invite you, if you'd like to, you can stand. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Into a sinful world he came, fully man and fully God. Let all the brains come worship him. You. 